And from an artist point of view, I think it's about having these conversations, mixing with people outside of the circles that you might normally not mix with and trying to see other artists as other people trying to do the same thing as you. And that doesn't mean that they're competition and trying to have that kind of abundant view of the world that there is enough for everybody of whatever the resource might be that you're after, whether it's getting signed by a label or whether it's some money, like having this view that there is enough to go around and the best way that we can access it is to collaborate and help each other. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm going to share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're going to show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, so I'm excited to be here today with Harriet JW. Uh, Harriet is the founder of Secret Sessions, which is a UK-based music platform that features intimate, unplugged performances. Uh, they worked with hundreds of influential artists and creators like Casey Musgraves, Ed Sheeran, Bastille, Passenger, Mahalia. And she's also the founder of an organization called Girls to the Front, which is a platform for equal rights for women in the music industry. And today, I thought it'd be great to have a conversation about uh, what are some steps that we can take to improve things in the music industry, both in terms of specifically as it relates to equal rights for women, but also more generally as an artist, you know, what are some ways that you can build a sustainable career, which also is something that's really, really challenging, I think, for a lot of artists. So, Harriet, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I've admired your work for a long time, so it's good to uh, yeah, good to chat in this format. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. So, uh, to start out with, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more just about your story and how you, how you got started with Secret Sessions. Yeah, cool. Um, so, I was a filmmaker initially, so I left art school with a camera on my back and looking for people to film essentially um and I'd really fallen in love with the YouTube format when I was at university so I was finishing university around when YouTube launched uh in 2007 so I saw YouTube as a way to get directly to an aud- like directly into people's homes straight to an audience and because I studied at um, an art an art college called St Martin's in London, uh, I I did film, but I was placed with the the real kind of artsy art people, um, and they all wanted to show in galleries in like white white spaces, and I was like, this YouTube thing is amazing. You can get right to people's homes all over the world, and I loved that idea. Um, and I'd also fallen in love with music as a um, format with visual music. So it, I was never like a muso as such. So I was never in bands. I never played instruments. But what I loved was the way that music made people feel. And when you coupled that with visual, I just thought it was an amazing thing. So I always wanted to make video for music. Um, so that's what led me to going out and filming musicians, basically, and, and putting them on YouTube. Um, and in those early days, there wasn't lots of people doing this. And it meant that I got access to, you know, lots and lots of artists that right now might be a bit harder to get access to. Some of those artists became very famous, as you've just uh, listed. 
uh, and the really nice community built on YouTube. Um, so that's how Secret Sessions all began, and it and it was like that for the first five years of its existence. That's awesome. Yeah, it certainly is a pretty amazing breakthrough. Just the ability, just the internet in general, especially at the time of recording this. You know, we just are on the tail end, knock on wood, of the pandemic, and. You know, can you imagine the world, like what it would have been like as challenging as it was, we had Zoom, we had virtual ways to stay connected, ways to, you know, to build communities still. But if we didn't have the internet and YouTube and, and different like, you know, platforms that allow us to connect, I, I can only imagine how much more challenging it would be. So it sounds like, you know, you really were able to, to take this, this innovation, this way for artists to connect more directly with a community with an audience and to you know kind of be the the forebringer of of that movement how about girls to the front can you talk a little bit about that organization being formed and how did that come about after secret secret sessions yeah so secret sessions then became a live event um and we were running that live event for the second half of secret sessions existence which again was five years we've been around for 10 years so as the pandemic hit, we were suddenly left with no activity, basically, because, you know, my existence was organising and putting on live shows. I was the host. I was the um, booker, booker for the, for the talent. talent. So, so my, my life, life was, was very centred around, around these, these live, live shows, shows that we, we did. did. So I suddenly had some time on my hands and I knew how the artist community would be feeling and I wanted to do something about it. Um, I was already passionate about the gender narrative within the music industry here in the UK, and it will be much the same where, you where you're from. But, you know, statistically, it's 20% of artists that are signed to labels are women or non-binary artists. So you're 80% less likely to be signed if you're a woman. So that disadvantage that already exists for women coupled with the pandemic i was like right i need to do something for the artist community but i want to do something specifically for women um so girls to the front in the beginning was literally just a series of zoom calls so we'd meet twice a week once would be a kind of creative crit so i went to art school and we had these things called crits where you'd bring your work and everyone would talk hopefully positively about what you were doing and you get constructive criticism so that was like a really nice closed creative session just with the talent and they really got to know each other um, and then on a Thursday we'd bring in someone from from the outside so someone from Spotify someone from Google to of course they were all sitting at home as well <laughs> so we got really good access to industry people to come and talk to the the artists as well and then from there, it's just kind of slowly grown as the world starts to open up, you know, uh, as Secret Sessions, we're putting on a festival this summer and Girls to the Front is programming a stage and a lot of the community have now worked together and played on each other's tracks. And it's just sort of I'm allowing it to become its own um, platform. Uh, and then alongside that, we have a lot of um, development programs for, again, for women specifically. And yeah, it's it's happily taking over my life that's awesome i love that idea and in a great way to sort of to take this this movement this momentum that you built and the pandemic happens you can't do live shows but but it sounds like 
uh, a core behind both of them has really been leveraging these communities and bringing people together. And it reminds me of the the mastermind principle from you know Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and and um, yeah, there's been a lot of different examples of you know, quote unquote masterminds and just the power of bringing together a group of people. I love the idea with with crits, like bringing them together to to network with each other, to give each other feedback. So, I mean, it's certainly kind of a big topic, a big discussion to dive into because I think it's, yeah, it's certainly reflected in the music industry um, with you know twenty percent of signed artists being women, um, and other you know examples of of inequality, and it's not just in the music industry, but just you know it's part of a, a deeper um, root issue, and and I'm curious. Obviously, it's a big, a big issue. What are some of the steps that you think are important in order to help to to start to deal with with that inequality? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's a massive question that has a lot of layers, and you know, it's a question that I'll get asked a lot. And I think it it almost needs to come from the top and the bottom at the same time. Um, and I think it's quite easy to always turn to education at the bottom and always say something needs to be healed from the bottom up but ultimately it is the people at the top that have the control over these decisions yes the people at the top will be guided by the the fans and and money who's buying what but people are steered by the marketing budgets of the labels so if all you're getting served is uh you know young men then essentially that's what you're going to buy and that's what fans are going to want and it just becomes this kind of vicious cycle so there's definitely a lot of work to be done at the top and people need to sacrifice some of their bottom line at some point to take a risk and sign more women and things like that and publicize more women female artists so that they get seen more and played more on radio and put on more festival lineups but equally a lot needs to happen at the bottom as well. So one thing that I realised from Running Girls to the Front is how a lot of these artists, because of what's happening at the tops, just see each other as competition. They don't work together. Um, you know, some of them would have said in our meetings, I've just realised I don't even know any other women in the music industry. Every recording studio I've been has been all men. I've never collaborated with another woman. And just by creating these spaces that allowed them to meet and see each other as human beings and not as one of the other 20% that might take their spot, it really allowed people to, to form communities. And I think the other really exciting approach and is a space that I know you work in is allowing artists to see that there is another option and you don't have to be controlled by any of these businesses that are going to put you in one of these low percentages and actually you can have the control of your own career and you don't need to have a record label and you can make money as an artist whether you're a man woman you know whatever so yeah there's a lot there's a lot of different angles uh and from a fan perspective fans need to you know be more open to looking beyond the trending music and finding artists that they want to support and supporting them in other ways than just streaming their music on spotify 
Yeah, that's that's so good, and and, and I love the way you described it as it's you know it's a it's a, a lot of um, layers to it, and you don't think that necessarily comes from the bottom, um, but also comes from the top as well, and kind of it makes me think of like the chicken and the egg um, analogy. You know, it's like what came first, chicken or egg? Well, you know, they kind of co in, they kind of come up together at the same time. It, it sounds like what you're saying is that. In the short term, it might mean, you know, because there's a vicious cycle to it, because I think that this is one point that I hear sometimes um, in having discussions like this. I think the fact that we can even have a discussion like this right now is a step in, in the right direction, right? It's like the first step is just awareness, just talking through things and, and having honest discussions and, and learning. But, um, you know, there's been some discussions that I've had. And this is something that goes deeper than, I mean, it's it's both along with like equal rights for women, but also in terms of like racism and in different topics that are in a similar vein, underrepresentation. One sort of objection that I hear sometimes is that, well, you know, I don't really look at man or woman. I don't really look at race. I just choose the person who's like the best fit for the job or is like, you know, the most qualified or whatnot. And I, I'm sure that there could be a very similar um, argument for choosing more men than women for record labels, right? It's like, well, we're, we're just we're just going to go with what the people want. We're just going to, you know, we're going to make more, we're going to go with what's the most profitable. And right now that's been shown that it's 80% men. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on that specific point and how you, would you recommend like kind of setting like even just setting guidelines or standards based on organizations, like we want at least X percent of, you know, women, X percent of blank, or, or how, how could someone who's in that sort of position be able to navigate in order to, you know, help be a part of the solution? I think have, having percentages and quotas are a good idea. You know, the, the PRS here are running a campaign called 50-50 and by Oh, I think it's 2025. They want lineups to be 50-50 split between um, between genders. And, you know, so I think that's really good just as almost a kind of buzzword just to have this number that you're reaching for. Whether you reach it or not, you're going to get further than you, than you are now. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently and something because I will often get put on in conversations with people that are working um, for, for other minorities. So whether it's, um, you know, uh, black people's rights in music, disability in music, um, all the sort of minorities coming together to have these conversations. And I think one thing that often comes out of these conversations is that People just need to be having conversations. And I think something that's very hard, particularly with the internet because of cancel culture and things like that, is that we become, we become very scared to ask questions or to say that we don't know something or to say that, yeah, maybe we do have an inherent prejudice against something. And one thing that I learned through the BLM movement and something that I learned way too late and should have read up on much earlier was that, yes, we do all have these inherent racist tendencies as growing up within white privilege and the, the one of the main issues is that we, is that we don't admit that because we're so scared to be seen as racist or sexist or disabledist when actually it's almost like we all need to admit that we are and that these this we sit on histories of like hundreds of years that how do we even start to unpick this stuff if we can't admit that it exists? So I think in saying, wondering about things like, well, you know, we just put on what the people like, 
on the one hand, that is because of the vicious cycle of they're being signed, they're being promoted, they're being seen, therefore they're being bought. Um, but we also sit on these history of gender inequality that's thousands of years old, which we shouldn't have to ignore. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a big case for just sort of having conversations. And on a much more kind of crude level, there there's things like labels sign less women because they're more expensive because they have dancers and glam squads and, you know, Ed Sheeran can turn up in a scruffy ripped T-shirt and a pair of jeans and an old guitar and sell millions of records and women are more expensive. Um, so, yeah, that I think there's a much bigger, much more political picture, but I also think there's a... Yeah, a much more e easy easy route of just labels needing to fill a quota that's a bit more fair. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and yeah, I think you're you're totally right that a big challenge with you know being a part of the the solution or moving in the right direction is a lack of willingness to observe or acknowledge any any hints of racism or sexism or labeling ourselves as in that <clears throat> because i think most people well every single person is the hero of their own story right like we all um even like selectively there's been a lot of studies to show people like the way that our memories work is that all of us remember things in different ways that that position us in a favorable light you know and so no one wants to be labeled or positioned in a way like you know that diminishes our sense of self and our and being labeled as racist or sexist certainly isn't something that you know that makes us seem you know position us in, in a great light part of the, the issue might just be in terms of like the definitions like how are we how are we assigning like what does it mean to like what does racism mean what does sexism mean and for a lot of people i think that when they hear those words they think that there's some uh, very, what's the right word, like malicious, malicious attempts, or there's, it's violent. And in some cases, obviously, like it can be very violent, very malicious. But I think in a lot of cases as well, is there's just more of an undercurrent of bias. You know, that, that's all it is. It's just like psychological bias. So it's sometimes a little bit emotionally tricky to use those words like saying you're a racist or you're a sexist because it sort of it creates this defensiveness and so i think that it is really important to have conversations like we're having now and to and to not necessarily demonize or attack you know people who are unconscious or, or don't who are trying to do the best that they can but also have you know some of these these underlying beliefs that were passed down from generation to generation but at the same time having willingness to shine a light on those and actually have an honest discussion like is what's what's going on here yeah a hundred percent and i think yeah i mean i i felt exactly exactly the same when so i think i read um a book called How to Talk to White People About Race or some, something like that. I read a few of them um, and it was almost like there's a realisation point, but there's almost a, a power and a, a relaxation in being able to say, shit, yeah, I am. I am that. I am racist and not having it seen as that malicious way but i completely understand that you you know you, you don't want to go around and start telling people that everyone's racist it's it's more about just acknowledging this bias and this history and the things that have been fed through the media and 
all the different industries that we might not realize are, are in the back of our heads sometimes when you know whether it's when we meet people in the street or whether we when we buy music um so yeah it's it's a massive it's a massive massive conversation but i think from a from a music fan perspective the best thing that you can do is be diverse within your music tastes and you know acknowledge by go to shows spend money with all different types of artists and from an artist point of view i think it's about having these conversations mixing with people outside of the circles that you might normally not mix with and trying to see other artists as other people trying to do the same thing as you and that doesn't mean that they're competition and trying to have that kind of abundant view of the world that there is enough for everybody of whatever it, the resource might be that you're after whether it's getting signed by a label or whether it's some money like having this view that there is enough to go around and the best way that we can access it is to collaborate and help each other get access to, to these things Oh, what's up guys? So quick intermission from the podcast so I can tell you about an awesome free gift that I have for you I wanted to share something that's not normally available to the public. They normally reserve for our $5,000 clients that we work with personally. This is a presentation called Six Steps to Explode Your Fan Base and Make a Profit with Your Music Online. And specifically, we're gonna walk through how to build a paid traffic and automated funnel that's gonna allow you to grow your fan base online and the system's designed to get you to your first $5,000 a month with your music. We've invested over $130,000 in the past year to test out different traffic sources and different offers and really see what's working best right now for musicians. And so I think it's gonna be hugely valuable for you. And so if that's something you're interested in, in the description, there should be a little link that you can click on to go get that. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is, you know, if you want to do us a, a huge favor, one thing that really makes a big difference early on when you're creating a new podcast is if people click subscribe, then it basically lets the algorithm know that this is something that's new and noteworthy and that uh, people actually want to hear and so that'll help us reach a lot more people so if you're getting value from this and you get value from the free trainings then if you want to do us a favor i'd really appreciate you clicking the subscribe button all right let's get back to the podcast mm, that, that's really powerful and i think that's one thing that i see that separates a lot of the people a lot of the artists that are the most successful are the ones who they learn how to view it, like you're saying, not necessarily as a competition, but as a collaboration. And you know, things like tour packages, going on tour with with other artists, it's like these cross pollinating, right? And it's it's great to have that diversity and to be able to collaborate. And you're gonna be a lot better off if you, if you are actively seeking and building those relationships versus just sort of trying to to hold on to your fans and like and, and to be competitive about it. One thing that I know you have a lot of experience in is really kind of zooming out a bit and and talking more generally about um, artists. And like you mentioned, you don't necessarily need to have a record label sign you in order to be successful and have a you know a full time living as a musician nowadays. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see musicians struggling with when they're just getting started and, and you know maybe they don't have their first a thousand true fans yet and they're just trying to get things off the ground? I think one of the biggest things from the outset is that we're so taught to go for these big numbers in in the in the music industry in the digital space generally and 
people are thinking in hundreds and thousands and millions and instead of like you say 1000 true fans like and people are trying to build followers over fans and i think it's a really important differentiation between building a community of people that really care what you do and building your numbers um so i think there's you know there's two models that I see in the industry. There's this, the Spotify model where you're just trying to get lots and lots and lots and lots of people to stream your music and give you a fraction of a penny. And in that model, you do need millions in order to make a sustainable income. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. And those models tend to need the marketing machine of a label unless you are very savvy with the online space, you have some luck on your side, you get a brilliant collaboration with Beyonce somehow. That's the model that artists tend to chase first because it's the model that they see. It's the model that they see successful artists get to at some point in their career. But once you start to think a little bit more closely about the 1000 fans model, and actually if you did have a thousand people that really loved you and they bought all your merch and went to all your shows, and they spent £100 with you a year, you would have a £100,000 salary. And trying to get that through the streaming model takes millions and millions and millions of hits. So getting 1,000 people to love you is still, it's still very hard, but it's much more of an enjoyable and intimate experience of building a fan base. So I think one of the first things that people need to do is stop thinking about the millions and thinking about the hundreds of thousands and stop trying to build like follow accounts and things like that and try to build like true engagement. So whether that's like, you know, doing more shows, doing more streams and actually collecting these email addresses instead of just saying, yeah, I've got a thousand fans, I've got a thousand followers because that means absolutely nothing. It's nothing more than a vanity metric. And I think as soon as artists realize this and start building that fan base one by one, you know, it's that slight edge principle. So if you did something every day for a year, you know, you're going to be exponentially better at it than if you didn't do that one thing every day for a year, even if you do it for just one minute. So, you know, you ask artists, if they've got a fan base and they're like, no, I've never gotten around to it. Whereas if they'd gotten around to it a year ago and they'd put one person a day on it, that's 365 people and you're a third of the way to your 1,000 fans. So that would be my, like, right at the start, try and shift your mindset into that way of thinking. Because, yes, you might want to be a big streamed artist with millions of fans, but you're going to be so much more attractive to a record label if you turn up with a 1,000 true fans on their door. So this is, the, like, a contributing factor to that model anyway. And it doesn't work so well the other way around. So get the 1,000 true fans model in your head and, and start building is my, is my um, advice. That's so good. Yeah, so, so it sounds like what you're saying is that one of the mistakes or one of the challenges is starting out, focusing on the numbers and focusing on getting you know, vanity metrics, follower accounts up, and not necessarily focusing on the engagement with those, with those people, which in my mind sort of... The, what comes to mind is going horizontal versus going vertical, you know, like horizontal, I um, mean, you're trying to get as many people as possible, but it's very, very shallow. You're not going very deep with those people. And compared to, you know, going vertical, you have a, very, a smaller niche, you have really zoomed in. 
Um, I, I think you're right. I think that that's, especially with the tools that we have nowadays in terms of being able to identify a niche market and really like use um, even like Facebook and Instagram advertising and go really deep with a smaller group of people. Um, it's a really powerful way to, to build a core community, a core tribe. And it also sounds like what you're saying is that that's what you should do it anyways, because if you do want to go get signed to a record label, then it's going to be a lot more challenging if you don't already have a sustainable music career, if you don't already have something attractive to get uh, signed to a record label. And, and I also love how that really brings things back down to earth too, in terms of, you know, you don't need to get 10,000 new fans a day or hundreds of thousands or millions of fans. You know, it's, we're talking about getting like 10 fans a day, multiplying that by a year. And, you know, you've already got your 1,000 true fans and then some. So I guess the next question would be, you know, what's some of the best ways or the best strategies that you've seen for cultivating those th one fan a day or three fans a day or even, you know, 10 fans a day? Um, what are some of the best ways that you've seen to really build those relationships to find those people and then to actually build a deeper relationship with them? Yeah, so I think it's all about, you know, ultimately it's all about belonging isn't it it's making people feel like they're part of something and if you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs belonging is like up there below food and water i think and the internet in its current state the way that we use social networks don't doesn't really give that sense of belonging i think it actually makes people feel further apart you know, you only have to look at like the rise of things like Instagram Reels. People are like, use Instagram Reels, you get shitloads of views, but none of those people end up following you. And, you know, it gives this illusion of having some success, but it just ends up, I think, making people feel worse at the end of the day when you look at things like that. So I think actually knowing kind of how to measure engagement, and there's loads of sums that you can do online, it's quite simple to, to find a baseline of where you're at. And the way that you actually build that engagement is by doing the very sort of traditional tactics. So, you know, there is no better way in the music industry by doing this live, obviously, going out and actually recruiting these people one by one by playing to them on a stage and having that intimate experience. But, you know, the internet is the next best thing when we're in a pandemic, but also when you want to build a global fan base. So how can you... How can you cultivate that feeling in a digital space and it's mainly by giving people attention and whether that's you know i see artists do a really really nice things when you follow them where they'll leave you a quick voice note you know just these things that you aren't expecting like going onto an art uh, going onto a fan's instagram page and writing a nice comment on one of their pictures i think artists often think that you know they're the stage they put out information and people take it but actually it should be a two-way relationship so you know your fans are going to feel amazing if you go and leave them a comment or if you leave them a voice note or if you send them an email that's a little bit more personal and start to bring them into this world a little bit more and I think you know things like the Patreon model I think are brilliant because they allow you to give to fans in a way that you can't on other platforms so giving them things like exclusive access to things um so just really kind of looking at what the community looking at what community you want to be the leader of 
basically and what are those special things about you that is going to make you a good leader of this community so some artists are like super into wellness so they'll like you know create these patron communities around wellness or um you know it might just be as simple as your music is really helps young people so you go out and you recruit those young people talk to them about your music why do they love it how does it make them feel i think it's just all about making people feel seen and making them feel part of something that's bigger than just them listening to your music yeah i love that i think that's so on point too just in terms of like when you think about the benefit of music and, and bands and the impact that it's made the live shows and the community and the belonging and bringing people together is such a huge part of that you know like going to a show and being surrounded by people who are a fan of the same the same music like there's this connection that happens there so it sounds like what you're saying is that in lieu of live shows if you're actually doing them in person you can also create those kinds of experiences online you can do live streams on almost every social media platform has these live streams where you can connect with people and that it's really important to to share appreciation to share attention and i think that that's certainly a superpower in and of itself you know as, as humans you know all of us you know a, a core need is to be appreciated to be fully seen be recognized and so if you can do that for for your fans if you can shine a light on them if you can appreciate them then that's something really powerful it's a way that you can create that community in terms of different types of you, you mentioned the patreon the patreon model it's actually kind of creating a brand pairing it with something that you're passionate about whether it's wellness or some, something else that aligns with your music what are some of the your, some of the recommendations you'd have for someone in terms of let's say that someone's listening to this or watching this right now and they have invested a lot of time a lot of energy into honing their music they have at least five songs to feel really proud of and mostly it's just their friends and their family who've been listening to the to the songs where do they even start with like finding you know, people who might appreciate their music and, and how do they start building this this community so they can even start appreciating these these people yeah i think that's a really good question and it is that it is that tipping point isn't it where people start to realize that they've got talent they their friends and family enjoy it but they can't get out of that rut of getting beyond the friends and family and i think there's an initial point of um acknowledging it to yourself and standing in the power of being an artist because you'll often find that when you talk to artists at that level they'll be like oh i'm i'm like trying to do this artist thing or like you know I, i'm kind of an artist like i think the first thing from a mindset point of view is to acknowledge and own the fact that you are an artist. So if this is what you want to do, you're doing it. I'm an artist. You, you know, you change your Instagram bio from that, you know, that silly one that you had that was cool because you're embarrassed to write that you're a musician and really own it. It's a little bit like when you start a business and you have to make that shift between putting up silly pictures of your holiday to putting up pictures of your services. And that's really scary because you, you, you feel judged and you think that people are gonna think like, who does she think she is doing something like that? So I'd say that that was like step one is to stand in your power of being an artist. And I think step two is very much about what we just talked about. So kind of manually going out and recruiting people into this club. So it might be 
some uncomfortable moments of like sending out dms and things like that thirdly i would say that it's collaboration so you know all of those massive youtubers that are now making millions of pounds and living in mansions they got to where they are through collaborating with other people slightly larger than them and this is how like touring works as a musician so you go out there you meet someone that's just slightly bigger than you you collaborate then you recruit their fans into your army then you then you are able to go out a little bit higher and collaborate with someone recruit them into your it's it's just a lot of kind of manual work and i think mostly there aren't really any big secrets of how to do this and i think what a lot of artists think is that there is a big secret of how to do this but it is just this a lot of sort of hard work a lot of dedication to your craft continuously learning continuously building and just going out and getting these people and i know that that's exactly what you did building to millions and millions of streams with your band and i'm really excited to have you on our podcast to talk about that but I hope that you'd agree with me that, that it there isn't this sort of big secret source that you need to find in the algorithm somewhere. It's a very old-fashioned way of building community that's about talking to people, that's about getting them to believe in your talent through your talent. But also that mindset shift of believing in yourself, I think, is really important from the beginning. 100%. Yeah, I think that starting out, the best way to do it really is like you're, you're talking about from from scratch, just reaching out to people and being a human and having conversations. I think that word conversation is really important. And one of the mistakes is, you know, have almost like a megaphone, just kind of like shouting out like, hey, like, you know, come listen to me, come check me out. But as humans, like we don't really, <laughs> like we have conversations, we go back and forth, we have, we have discussions. And so, for us, yeah, and, and we'll go into this um, when we talk tomorrow on, on your podcast, but we walked up to fans who are waiting in lines for shows, and we just introduced ourselves, and we shared some of our music, and um, that was how we got started. That's how we sold our first 24,000 CDs was face-to-face, you know, meeting people in lines for shows, and um, what you mentioned with, you know, maybe going and DMing people, even though it's a little uncomfortable at first, and and yeah, like you, you want to be human when you do it too. You don't want to just like spam people or just like, you know, copy and paste or whatever, but there's ways that you can build interaction in an authentic way. You can reach out, you can get people, people are looking to connect. And I think you're also right on point when it comes to where it really begins is taking the spotlight and turning it inwards, kind of looking at yourself and looking at how you, how you um, identify yourself. I mean, everything that we do is a result of how we identify ourselves. And if you identify yourself as someone who is a struggling, struggling artist, I, I see this a lot. Um, and I, I love to hear your, your take on this, but I've seen, I think one of the challenges is identifying as a struggling artist or as a starving artist. I've seen people literally introduce themselves like, hey, like I'm, I'm a struggling artist. And it, it almost feels like a mechanism to sort of like try to maybe to get some sympathy or to get, you know, like, I don't know what the right, the right word for it is, but it certainly is not like a, like being in your power. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm a struggling artist. You're literally um, creating this, this identity of someone who's struggling. 
And so I'd be curious in hearing your thoughts on that inward shift and creating that new identity um, to stand in your power. How does someone make that shift from someone who's a little bit maybe shy or embarrassed or feels a little bit ashamed of like, yeah, who am I to, to, you know, to really to do this? Am I, am I good enough? How do they kind of shift that identity from that to someone who actually is on the path to becoming a successful full-time artist? Yeah, I mean, the, the with, with the artists that I work with, the starving artist mentality is one of the first things that we talk about and how to get rid of that. And, you know, as somebody that's come through the, a career that started in the arts, like, I completely get it. And it's fed into us, it's drummed into us that artists are starving because you don't make money out of these passion projects. But I think the the first thing to do is to think about value and think about how business is an exchange of value. And then you think about the value that music has in the world. So where would we be without gigs? Where would we be without music festivals? What would an advert be like if it didn't have a nice emotional piece of music on it? And if you can start to think of business, start to think of yourself as a business and think about that as an exchange of value and see the real value that music has in the world, I think that's a really good starting point. But then we have the problem of the music industry homogenizing and commoditizing music so that the value that we see is a fraction of a penny because that's what Spotify and, you know, that's how, how uh, music is charged for on, on the internet. Um, so I think it's shifting away from that model only. So not seeing that as the be-all and end-all model and thinking a bit more about the Patreon model, about the 1,000 fans model. You know, Patreon's just been valued at $4 billion. Like, that is showing you where the world is going in terms of creators and creating. So Square, the mobile payment system, has just bought Tidal. Like, what does that tell you about, like, the direct-to-fan model? Um, so I think having information like that in your back pocket as well, yes, it might not be amazing for musicians right now in terms of the current music industry model, but it's changing very quickly. So I think, yeah, owning your, owning the fact that you're a business, seeing the value in music and also looking at these different models as an option for you as a business will hopefully help get you out of that starving artist mentality. And I think alongside that, there's a lot of work that people need to do around their money mindset as well. And just quickly, like a few tips that are really good, I think for that is um, thinking very abundantly about money. So we often think of, when we think of money, we think of lack. So we think of spending it, therefore not having it anymore, but we don't often think of it as this kind of cyclical nature. So if you think of your bank balance in the cyclical way of things coming in and them going out and them going in and them going out and them going in, so you're not like, oh, I've spent it, it's gone. You're like, okay, that's gone, but more's coming is another good practice. And just really delving into what your relationship with money is is really important because if you come from a space of lack and you always have, it might be that you didn't have a lot of money growing up, that will inform how you feel about yourself being an artist and making money and that might be something that's keeping you in that starving artist mentality and when you do sort of start to nail this stuff down things start to change really quickly and opportunities come out of nowhere that you never thought would because you you become open to them and you're not this kind of closed creative that just wants to 
be in their little dungeon creating work, promising the world that they'll be happy as long as they can make their music. No, I think people need to own the fact that money is an exciting thing that allows opportunity and growth. So yeah, starving artist mentality, get out of it as soon as possible. Uh, and if you can't find a way, drop me a message and I'll help you get out of it because it's not helping anyone. <laughs> that's that's so powerful. Yeah, just the the idea of value in general, how that applies to being a musician and a business owner. I mean, that's essentially what businesses are, is a way to provide value. And I think probably one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself both as a business and just as a human being is what you're saying is how can I provide more value and in terms of cultivating this new identity and really recognizing recognizing the value that they already offer I love conversations like this where you can like dive into like the inner the mindset and stuff because I think that the money mindset everything we're talking about really is the roots it's the roots of the tree everything else is just symptoms just branches but it starts with this this inner work what are some of your uh, recommended practices for someone who maybe like generationally they've grown up, their parents, their grandparents had, you know, the scarcity mindset around money. Are there things like, I don't know, visualization or affirmations or meditation, or what are some practices that you would recommend for someone who might be listening or watching this right now? That's someone that kind of feel maybe they're in this state where they feel like there is a very limited amount of money or they feel this weight on their shoulders. They feel like there's not enough. How can they start to really cultivate this new identity, this new mindset of abundance? I think from a holistic point of view, you know, things like gratitude and being thankful I think are very important so you know even as simple as saying thank you when you receive money is a really powerful one so whether it's getting money out of the cash machine getting change from somewhere just like looking at it and giving it a little nod and saying thank you I think is something that I've practiced and has been really helpful I think from a less holistic point of view a more practical sense of view uh, point of view it's very important to know where you're at and what you have and I think a lot of the time people will kind of ignore like I still sit down and do my personal finances on a monthly basis with a spreadsheet and that's something that I used to see my dad do but it's really important to know what the situation is in order to improve it if that's what you need to do so to know where you're at and I think we're very taught you know 90% of people will be from the view that math's boring and we don't want to do our accounts because it's boring and you just kind of avoid it. But actually, it can be a very powerful practice just to have as simple as a line that's in and out and knowing what goes in every month and knowing what goes out every month because you'll start to get that relationship with money where you really feel like you're using it as opposed to letting it use you and you own the situation and... You know, in doing things like this, you'll find out that you've got an old Now TV subscription that you're spending £100 on a year and you don't realise and, and things like that. Um, so I think it's a real balance of the practical and the holistic. And again, I think going back to that kind of abundant mindset, just knowing that it's out there. And I think, you, you know, you can get into this too early for where you're at with your mindset and people will start talking to you about like, saying thank you to money and thinking abundantly and it can be a little bit overwhelming when you're not when you're not there yet and you're like what 
you know, you think that I'm just going to suddenly materialise all the money in the world by thanking money. I'm not saying that that is what will happen, but I think just being able to make your relationship with money a little better each day is really good and not see it as the enemy and not see it as something dirty, instead see it as a tool. And I think one thing that someone said to me once was like, what do you think of rich people? And I was like, oh, you know, they're a bit gross mostly. And she was like, okay, what do you think of money? And I was like, oh, it's, you know, kind of dirty maybe. And she was like, what do you think of pizza? And I was like, pizza's nice. She was like, they're exactly the same thing. They're just tools, which you need at some point. Um, I mean, obviously you don't need pizza specifically, but food. Um, and they shouldn't be seen as, you know, you, sh you shouldn't be labelling these things as bad or good. They're just tools in which we need in our lives. So I think really unpicking your money mindset is important. And I think that goes probably goes back to childhood. What were you taught about money? How do you feel about money? Did you have it? Did you not have it? And you'll start to feel, you'll start to find some, some patterns. So for example, with me, when I did this exercise, I was taught so my dad would do his the finances and things and I remember being quite interested in money and I don't know if this was like an early entrepreneur interest but I'd, I remember always asking him how much he earned and he would he worked for the government we were very comfortable like not super rich not poor I had what I needed but he'd be like that's you know that's not for you to worry about don't worry or I'd be like what are you doing when he was doing the finances he'd be like don't worry you go and play and so for me, that really carried through my life that money wasn't for me to worry about. And I always managed to make enough that I needed, but I never had this like real hunger for money. And I think that probably actually stifled me a little bit in business at the beginning because I was much more focused on the creative. Like I didn't care if Secret Sessions was ever going to make money. I just wanted to make this beautiful YouTube channel full of, you know, wonderful videos when actually now looking back on it, I wish that I'd got more comfortable with money a lot earlier on because I think I would have been more successful in my 20s in business. Um, and now I'm, you know, I've done a lot of work with it and I'm building up a new business and it's just a completely different game now, now that I've got that relationship with money down a lot more than I used to. There's so much, so much goodness in, in there. Um, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that a lot of, you know, a lot of this comes down to your relationship with, with money and how you feel about it. And sometimes that's something that comes from uh, generational things that have been passed down. But even just like if you're listening or watching this right now and you kind of ask yourself the question, like, what do I think about people who have a lot of money? If the, what comes up is, oh, they're greedy or they're evil or they're corrupt or it's dirty, there's something wrong with it then how likely is it that you're going to do the things that you know lead to you being wealthy or acquiring money? Probably not because you know there's a part of part of you that thinks, well, people who have money are scummy or evil or they're they're corrupt or they're greedy. And it sounds like what you're saying is that money by itself is absolutely not crummy or evil or, or corrupt. You know, it's just a tool. And there's a lot of people using money for really positive you know, ways that create an impact. Money is just a tool that allows you to, to accomplish things. And, and from, I mean, in my experience, everyone that I've met 
personally, obviously there, there are cases of people and um, there's some that come to mind of people who have a lot of money who also are people that I wouldn't, I don't necessarily resonate with, or I don't think they're using it in, in a great way. Those tend to be people who are very like ego driven and winners, losers, or like for like separate. Um, but that's not the majority of them. It, in, in my opinion, it's the people who acquire money or the people who figure out how to provide a massive value to people. And that's how they build wealth. It sounds like um, a lot of it comes down to just kind of being honest with yourself and looking at how do I feel about money? Is it something that I, I think makes someone like greedy or corrupt? Or is it something that you can truly appreciate and, and wish someone else the best and, and actually like are excited for someone else if they have found money into to be able to encourage that. Cause if so, that's probably going to be a lot more powerful for yourself as you're trying to, to grow and to create a bigger impact. And another one of the points that you brought up was around just keeping track, you know, keeping track of where you, where's your starting point, where are you at? And what comes to mind when you talk about that is this analogy of if you set goals, it's kind of like having a map, right. And having a destination to get to on the map. And it's a, a lot harder to get to the destination if you don't know what's your starting point, where are you at on the map, right? And so, yeah. so it sounds like what you're saying is that um, a really important point to not overlook is, even though it can be uncomfortable, especially if you're someone like me a few years ago, yeah, I had about $36,000 in, in debt and it felt like a weight and it felt like something I didn't really want to look at. It was something kind of scary. It was, it was something that made me feel ashamed. And so a lot of times that's a scary thing to, to really sort of face head on and look at, but that's really, that's the only starting point is like, you have to kind of come to terms and to face things the way that they are. And then from there, you have better footing, better grounding to be able to take the steps that, that you need to, in order to get to your goal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that, how do you, you know, you've got to get to base camp in order to climb. And I think there is a real power in, in knowing the situation and making a plan. And I think, you know, that can be simply done with a little bit of a pen and a paper and work out how you're, how you're going to, to do something. And I think often it can feel overwhelming when things have mounted up. Like you said, £36,000 of debt is not a, a small, is not a small amount. And, Again, it's that going back to that slight edge principle of attacking things on a small basis once every single day. And like I said, if you were to look at your finances and take ownership of them and realise how much money you might be spending on a subscription that you don't need, you can start to sort of counterbalance things and find little pockets of money. And I think one thing that we're kind of conditioned to do somehow is live much far beyond our means <laughs> and um and and that's how a lot of people will build up this debt in their 20s or when they're at university is because it's just flying at them from all angles like these offers of getting yourself into debt with all these different banks and i think if you do come to a point where that has happened i think it's exactly as we're talking about just knowing what the situation is letting it kind of stare you right in the face and then grow, growing from there and improving from there. And everything that we've talked about, I think, comes back to having to get uncomfortable and having to get comfortable with getting uncomfortable. 
So whether that's staring your debt in the face and knowing exactly where you're at, or it's doing an Instagram live, growth doesn't come from, you know, sitting in a comfy bed in a nice hotel. It comes from getting really uncomfortable. Like if you think back to when you had to walk up to people and sell them CDs in the queue, probably wasn't something you wanted to do. But the growth and the reward that you got from that was really significant. And I think across everything that we've talked about, if people can kind of get comfortable with those uncomfortable moments and know that what that uncomfort is, is you growing, I think that's when things start to become exciting and when things start to change in all areas of your life. That's definitely like a mic drop kind of moment there, getting getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> Reminds me of the quote, I forget who quoted this, you can probably Google it and find it out, but um, life is life is hard if you live it the easy way, and life is easy if you live it the hard way. And the point that they're making is sort of like you're describing with the comfort zone. You know, it's uncomfortable at first to get out of your comfort zone, but that's really what leads to this, this growth and at least the long-term, you know, this fulfillment and life becoming a lot easier in the long-term and counterintuitively, the things that are really easy in the short-term, you know, things like just, you know, sleeping in bed all day or just not facing, you know, whatever it is, is easy in the short-term, but it's harder, it's harder in the long-term. One thing that I just thought of there is that, or pretending that you don't want something. And that's what I see a lot of artists do as well, pretending that they don't actually want the success that they do want because they're scared of not getting it. So being afraid afraid of failure means that they're afraid to actually identify what they want. And actually, if we're going to use quotes, I think that sort of... Um, what is it? If you shoot for the if you shoot for the moon and miss, you'll land amongst the stars. And I think that's something that again we need to get comfortable with is setting these big goals for ourselves. Um, and I'll often hear artists be like, you know, I'll be fine as long as I can just cover my rent. And it's like, no, come on, we can do more than this. I love that. You know, that quote is actually when we were touring full time. Um, you know, we signed a lot of um, signed a lot of notebooks and CDs and different things. And a lot of times, people would ask us to write quotes. That was like my go-to quote. <laughs> I wrote that in probably over 200 different notebooks. That exact quote. So that's definitely a full circle moment. Awesome. Well, hey Harriet, it's been great talking with you. I always appreciate being able to geek out and kind of go into some of the inner the inner game things. I think again are, are really really important and kind of create the roots for for the success that comes from it. So I really appreciate you being here and creating a platform to be able to shine a light on some of these things that are a little bit trickier to talk about. So uh, for everyone that's listening or watching this right now who would like to get into contact with you or connect more, what would be the best place for them to go to, to learn more? So the best place to find me is at Harriet JW. So Harriet is double R-I-E-T. JW uh, on Instagram. And then from there, you can go and find out Secret Sessions, Girls to the Front and things like that. Awesome. Yep. So we'll make sure to put it in the show notes so, so you can click on the link and go straight there. Harriet, you're awesome. Uh, thanks again. It's, it's been a lot of fun talking. Amazing. Thank you. And I can't wait to catch up with you on our podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, um, maybe we could do a quick uh, plug for your podcast as well, because if someone's listening to the podcast right now, I'm sure that they it would be a great uh, step for them to go follow you as well. Yeah, definitely. So our podcast is called Girls to the Front. So uh, just search for Girls to the Front on any podcast platform and you'll see a picture of me sitting against a wall. Uh, and that's where you can find all our latest episodes.
Awesome. Cool. All right. Thanks, Aria. Thank you. I'll chat to you tomorrow in that case. Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take their music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.